Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. The neighborhood is totally different. Um, the people that I grew up with in my community are, can no longer afford to live here. They're either, either displaced out into um, cities far away, um, as far as two hours away and commuting back and forth for work, or they're displaced out into the streets. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, Moms for Housing. Liam, what am I talking about? Uh, a uh, statewide and in some cases uh, national news story about a group of moms, uh, homeless and housing insecure in Oakland, who uh, took over a house uh, in the city to protest uh, corporate ownership of housing uh, and a lack of available housing for homeless residents. And they actually won. They actually got to keep the house, which I think um, came as a surprise to many of the people who were observing this story and possibly to the moms themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, uh, it's a, st- a story of how direct action uh, would uh, actually, you know, led to uh, specific change. And as always, we have the perfect guest. We have one of the moms. Uh, that's Dominique Walker, who was uh, uh, in the house, in the building. Uh, one of the moms who was actually there during the eviction itself. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that and what happened. Uh, and also with her, we have uh, Carol Fife of Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, or better known as ACE. They were the organizing group that was uh, a part of this protest. We'll also be talking with Aaron Glantz, who's a reporter with the Center for Investigative Reporting out of the Bay Area, who has written extensively about um, corporate ownership of single-family homes. Um, and he has a book out about the topic called Home Wreckers. Liam, I know it's, it's always been a dream of yours to write a book have you found a publisher or agent yet for the um, seven volume autobiography that you've been working on uh what's the titled um pronouncing avocado the liam dillon story you... my life is my secret life is gritty <laughs> the liam dillon story the liam dillon story um yeah. uh-huh. you... basically everything has to have the liam dillon story at the end we can just think of the of the of the front exactly you know, yeah, yeah yeah how to make your own liqueurs the liam dillon story you should try my amaretto if you haven't already. <laughs> and and just to, you know, make this offer, especially with my public radio experience, I'm more than happy to do the book on tape for this. So Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so would you do would you do impressions of like my various characters? You have various characters? Well, of course. It's not just it's not this is not a solipsistic view of the world over here. You I, know, we have uh, That's funny cuz the early drafts of the autobiography, there is literally no other person in the book except <laughs> you, Liam. So, um, okay, let's get to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. Um, And we have a juicy avocado this fortnight. um, And I'm actually going to come into this with a personal anecdote. You know, I live. Maybe you should write the autobiography. uh, It would not be an autobiography of. If I'm writing it about you, Liam, that's a biography. <laughs> so <laughs> no matter how much we get mistaken for each other. Uh, right. Um, I used to live in the great city of Seattle, my favorite city, um, huh. in Washington State. Um, but I had a 
car with a California license plate for a while. And I was always okay. very, very conscious of that. And I had friends who also had California license plates in Seattle, um, one of whom actually got van- that their car got vandalized with um, a note that said, uh, no Californians. Um, even though I was self-conscious about having a California license plate, I was never branded a terrorist. <laughs> what, what am I referring seems, to here? That seems... That seems positive. Um, <laughs> well, well, for this avocado, it was a nice little lead in there. Thank uh, you. We're talking about about folks who uh, have Californians who have been branded as uh, terrorists uh, by the great folks of Texas, mm-hmm. who are resenting the influx of folks from our state to uh, their fine community. Um, uh, which is something that's uh, happening uh, uh, a lot these days. Not the terroristic threats, of course, but the uh, the influx of Californians to Texas. Yeah, so a million residents from uh, 2007 to 2016. Um, California has lost on net to other states, and the number one destination where Californians are uh, moving to is Texas. So this is not an invented fiction. Um, people are, Californians are moving to Texas in droves, and the um, terrorists threat angle here um, comes from an L.A. Times story. Last year, and I'll just read from the story, last year, realtor Marie Bailey started receiving threats for helping Californians relocate. Angry Texans called her house, posted on her Facebook page, and used it to create a viral meme that accused her of being a terrorist threat to their way of life. The Facebook page she started four years ago after moving from Seal Beach has more than 15,000 followers. She lures them with tales of how she and her husband, a tech executive, traded their 50-year-old 1,500-square-foot California home for a Texas mansion. It is not just high housing costs that are driving Californians to Texans and causing realtors to be labeled as terrorists. There's another reason here. Yeah, so my colleague uh, Molly Hennessy Fisk, who wrote this story, found a couple um, look uh, Californians looking f- to come to Texas for quote uh, medical freedom, uh, and that is the freedom not to vaccinate their two sons. It feels very California to, in fact, first of all, have concerns about about this, and then second, uh, leave the state because of these concerns. We are going to introduce a new segment as a segue into our main topic, Moms for Housing. You know, Liam. Every now and then we get accused of being perhaps too wonky for delving into the— No. I know. I know. It's hard to hear. Fake news. Falsehoods. We perhaps delve into the minutia of policy in a way that might be perhaps inaccessible to a lay audience. But we now have a remedy for this, and that is— Intern slash producer extraordinaire Jacob, who uh, listeners may know from our last episode, who just joined the podcast production team of me, you, and him. Um, Jacob is a normal person and not super steep. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, it must be nice. Very, very must be nice, right? Yes. And so in order to avoid us becoming too wonky on, a, on topics that really do hit most normal Californians um, in a very direct way, we are introducing a segment called Jacob Asks a Normal Person Question. What even are houses? Why? 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 I don't know what that acronym means. How many roommates do you even have? Why? I don't understand what you're saying. Why? How does rent control work? Why doesn't Liam make eye contact with me? 
Hey, this is Jacob with my normal person question for the week. Normally, I'd be in studio, but I'm currently in Oakland recording Moms for Housing for the podcast. Anyway, how did Moms for Housing win, and what are the details? So, Liam, how did the moms win? So let's start back a little before Thanksgiving, November 18th, uh, and that's when uh, a group of uh, homeless and housing precarious uh, black mothers uh, from Oakland moved into a house in an Oakland neighborhood owned by a Southern California real estate firm, Wedgwood Properties. And that company buys homes, renovates them, and flips them. And so they had bought the property recently, and the home was vacant. And the decision by this group was a protest against real estate speculation, gentrification, displacement, vacant homes in the Bay Area, which, as everybody knows, is some of the highest housing costs in the country. So some more context for Oakland here. Uh, Over the last two years, between 2017 and 2019, homelessness climbed in the city 47%. And so now we're talking about a little more than 4,000 people in the city are are homeless. I think the fact that these moms actually were experiencing homelessness or at the very least were housing precarious, I think that is part of the reason that this was such a successful protest successful protest yeah act direct action yeah yeah Yeah, exactly exactly um because it just it hits at the right time uh so this group of homeless moms were living in this vacant property owned by a corporate entity um wedgwood for a couple months um wedgwood wanted them out they uh, sued to evict the moms. They won that suit in uh, eviction court. And then the Alameda County Sheriff came in one early morning in uh, January. Yeah, and it was a whole scene. You know, there was a crowd of supporters, the kind of the community uh, uh, members were kind of groundswell support. Um, and so a lot of folks around and the, the Sheriff's Department, you know, came in, you know, heavily armed. Um, it was mm-hmm. It was quite... Quite a scene early that morning. That's right. And so my expectation was this was probably where this story was going to end. But then something kind of came out of left field, um, which was intervention from uh, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff and Governor Gavin Newsom. Yeah, so in just in the ensuing days after the eviction, uh, both the governor and Mayor Schaff um, uh, got involved to negotiate a purchase of the house uh, to a local real estate cooperative, uh, which is going to uh, take the property off the market and community members will live in it. And so, uh, you know, the moms absolutely won. This house that they were living in is now um, going to be uh, 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 sold by this corporate entity um, to a uh, community cooperative. And there were other conditions they were able to extract from Wedgwood, the corporate owner. And this particular property was to be sold at an appraised value. It should, we should be noting, you know, the property was in poor shape, um, uh, yes. you know, at the time that Wedgwood bought it. Obviously, the moms made some improvements, but going to need a lot more. Um, so if I recall correctly, the, the, the price was somewhere around $500,000 for, for the house. And so that's, you know, roughly what, it, what, what we would expect, I suppose, the, the sale price to be. Wedgwood actually did not own the property for that long. Right. They, they, they had only purchased it a few months before the moms had occupied it, mm-hmm. but it was vacant before Wedgwood purchased it. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So we want to kind of go through three main um, points that Moms for Housing was making that got a, a lot of attention during this whole episode. Um, and one of the big asks that Moms for Housing was um, demanding was 
a right to housing, which I think sounds like something very progressive and Californian to a certain extent. Um, but what does right to housing actually mean to you? To me, I mean, well, it's, a, it's an interesting question because we've been having th this this debate, uh, I think, nationally to a certain extent, but also it, it, specifically in California over the last few months yes. uh, regarding uh, an effort um, that is coming out – it was coming out of the um, – the governor's task force on homelessness to provide some sort of right for people to have some sort of uh, shelter or house over their heads. Now, that's basically the level of detail that uh, mm -hmm. that that has been offered. Um, uh, but there's dramatic difference both in quality of housing, quality of services, quality of whatever, depending on how you want to define this. I view this as that there's kind of three different nebulous incarnations right, of it. Right. One, one is right to shelter, right. which is um, what is kind of currently the law in New York, which um, basically says New York, New York City, you have to have build as many shelter beds and make as many shelter beds available as there are people on the street. You have a you have a legal obligation to do so. That was an idea that was actually floated by. Um, the mayor, or, uh, the governor's homelessness task force, which you just referenced, um, and that did not go over well. Why? Well, I, for a variety of reasons. You know, while New York has been uh, good about getting its homeless population off the streets, uh, so its unsheltered population uh, is is small comparatively. Its overall homeless population is the largest in the country, right? And conditions yes. in these shelters, you know, uh, asbestos, lead, you know, not a very pleasant place for folks to be. Uh, plus a high cost, you know, over I think it was a billion, over a billion dollars just in New York City to um, run this system, which ultimately, mm -hmm. while again, certainly helping folks get out of the, the, the potentially get out of the cold, uh, cold, you know, mm -hmm. winter months in New York, um, not resolving uh, uh, the homelessness problem in the region uh, for a large amount of money. So it was not only various California cities and counties that were asking, well, how are we going to pay for right to shelter? It was also progressive homelessness advocates who, in a world of finite resources, were saying, look, um, right to shelter sounds good, but we rather see more resources devoted to more permanent housing solutions like permanent supportive housing. Yep. So that, that's, that's one version of right to housing. Then there's the version that the task force came up with, which is a legal obligation for cities and counties to make progress on their uh, homelessness problems. That's how I'm going to characterize that this. Seems, that sounds uh, fair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, which basically the state would outline a series of benchmarks which uh, have yet to be fully determined, which cities and counties would have to hit that could be building shelters, that could be building more housing, that could be simply um, consolidating different pots of money for homelessness um, in a way the state thinks is more efficient. If cities and counties don't do those things, um, the state or somebody affiliated with the state could sue cities into action and a judge could take over their homelessness initiatives. And that's the outlines of what could potentially be a, a measure on the statewide ballot uh, later this year. Uh, kind of the top uh, recommendation from the governor's homelessness task force, which released its, its ideas uh, earlier this month. Then there's the broader idea of right to housing kind of 
writ large. Well, it goes beyond the right to shelter, basically beyond a place yes. to lay your head every night, right? And actually physically gives you a like a right to a house, right? Yes. Um, and this is, you know, a lot uh, talked about in, 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 in the left um, as kind of decommodification of housing. Housing should be, you know, you often hear housing is a human right, right? You know, those sorts of yes. arguments where uh, uh, unlike um, – Unlike uh, many, you know, goods, um, housing should be something that uh, every person in the United States, in California, in the world um, should have uh, uh, access to uh, by virtue simply of their humanity. Right. Um, and exactly. So, and, and so how you are to. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But similar to public education. Right. Exactly. It's a good analogy. So. Yeah. Um, so how you do that, um, as you noted, is a, you know, challenge. Um, uh, but that's ultimately what uh, a lot of these folks would want to be driving for. So transitioning to one of the other issues that Moms for Housing highlighted, um, which was why are there all these vacant housing units when there are so many people sleeping on the street? And I think that there's something that's really kind of visceral and uh, kind of, you know, to folks, not just in intuitive. Yeah, and visceral and intuitive, right, to folks, and not just in Oakland where the popula homeless population is growing, but, you know, broader California, right, which is we have folks without any housing at all, without any shelter at all, and yet at the same time we have properties where there's no one living in them. And so, again, I think there's a, in some ways, intuitive, common sense kind of question that why we as a society um, allow for these circumstances to occur. So I think yeah. there's two ways to view this vacancy issue. One is this, uh, as you said, visceral mismatch between yeah. the number of vacant units, whether they're apartments or single-family homes, versus um, people uh, the, the number of yeah. yeah the number of people experiencing homelessness. the The other way to view it is: can we solve the broader housing crisis by tackling vacancy? Right. And why are there vacant units to begin with? Sure. And I think the 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 second portion of that argument. So vacancy data is problematic for a handful of reasons that we uh, don't really need to get into. Um, but it is safe to say that the vacancy rates overall in some of the hottest housing markets in California are low. They're relatively low. When you look at the number of units that are occupied versus the number of units that are vacant, and especially vacant for a prolonged period, mm -hmm. um, it, it is it, it's not like 40 percent of the housing stock um, is vacant in San Francisco. And that's that's an intuitive finding. Right. Yeah. The There is a relationship between price and vacancy. If it's a really hot rental market, um, you would expect that there's not a ton of uh vacancies sure and i think you know we should just briefly note some of the reasons why there, why there would be vacancies right yes um, so obviously there's slack in the rental market when people leave apartments and are searching for new ones right um you know uh you know i saw a lot of this obviously when i was looking for my new apartment in in los angeles there was a you go to zillow or you go wherever an apartment list and, and try, mm -hmm. to, try to search for places to, to 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 go and then a lot of them necessarily doesn't mean there's someone living there at that moment right um it's the same when you have kind of new construction those buildings are filling up that takes time you know um yes. and and a higher vacancy rate could be mean a signal that prices in a particular area are too high um and then to fill up these apartments they would need to be reduced right and so in some cases you could argue that a high vacancy rate is a good thing in the sense that it would be a signal for prices to come down soon.
I will say, and this kind of brings us to our next topic. Yeah. If you are a corporate entity, um, it is easier to keep, let's say, a single family home vacant on the market, um, hoping to rent it out, um, than if you are a mom and pop landlord. Right. You, you would assume, right? Yeah. Because um, you have some of the financial wherewithal to endure, you know, multiple months of vacancies. That brings us to the third big topic that Moms for Housing really raised to the national consciousness, which is why are there all these homes with corporate owners? Yeah, and we get into this a pretty good, you know, amount with uh, our interview with with Aaron Glantz. who wrote a whole book on this issue, right? Um, but suffice yep. to say, you know, in 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 summary. Uh, Ever since the financial crisis and foreclosure crisis about a decade ago, um, there was a lot more interest and investment by these uh, corporate entities in housing stock, um, not just the kind of big condo towers that perhaps they were kind of always into, but single family homes, um, which has more traditionally been seen as, you know, what, uh, you know, regular people uh, buy and raise their families. And I think there's a very legitimate argument that at least in some smaller local markets, corporate ownership of single family homes is elevating price, right? So the, all, that the housing stock that's owned by these corporate entities is, is kind of frozen, right? They're, they're not putting it up for sale as much as um, a family who decides to move to a, to a different place in the state, let's say. Then you have uh, uh, apartment renters who uh, are competing against corporate entities to purchase right. some of the single-family home stock directly. Um, again, that could inflate prices. And also just uh, purely the mechanics of it, uh, these corporate entities will typically pay all cash, right. um, which partly explains why we've seen a rise in all-cash transactions mm-hmm. um, over the last, basically since the Great Recession. Right. I just want to say here the data on this, and we get into this with the interview with, with Aaron, is um, not good. I can't tell you the number of single-family homes that are owned by corporate entities. And I think there's a broader argument, too, like why should any single-family home be owned by someone that doesn't live in it? Like no one is raising that question Mm -hmm. a ton, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's pose some of those questions to our guests. We are here with Aaron Glantz. He is a senior reporter at Reveal and the author of Home Records: How a Gang of Wall Street Kingpins, Hedge Fund Magnates, Crooked Banks, and Vulture Capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I think we got a little bit of what the central thesis of your book is from that title. But can you tell our our <laughs> listeners what your main takeaway from all your research into the housing industry uh, is? Well, I set off as somebody who had covered the housing bus 10 years ago. And it's easy to forget now when you know, we are dealing with incredibly high housing prices and an affordability crisis, that it was just recently when we were awash in foreclosures, the banks literally couldn't give them away. And so it was really important for me that we not only discuss whether or not we have enough housing, need to build more housing, and need to change restrictions on building, but also who owns the housing that we already have. And you look at the homeownership rate in America, which declined 
not only during the housing bust itself, but also in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and then bottomed out at a 51 year low in 2016. And then you have a situation in this country where the richest one-tenth of 1% own as much wealth as the bottom 90%. And a lot of that is because people don't own as much as they used to. And when you look at issues like gentrification, displacement, that are so critical in our cities. You know, I was able to buy a house in San Francisco during the crash. So now with real estate prices growing sky high, I'm enjoying the benefits of property appreciation and my wealth is increasing. Sweet, sweet equity. Yeah, meantime, my neighbors who are renting are worried that they may not only be forced out of their house, but may be forced out of the entire region. And so it's really, really important that we focus in on uh, you know, who is able to own housing and who is not. A lot of what you chronicle in the book is uh, investment firms snapping up foreclosed properties in the wake of the Great Recession. Most of those are single family homes that they then subsequently rent out. And I just kind of want to cut to the what I think is the most relevant question for Californians, which is, do we know how many homes are owned by corporate entities in this state? Not really, no. I mean, we know from the census, they do surveys nationally, and they estimate that there's about 3 million homes and about 10 million apartment units nationwide that are now owned by LLC, LLP, and LP shell companies. And that is unprecedented in our nation's history. You know, the whole idea of an LLC only dates back to the late 70s, and it was only popularized in real estate in the 90s. Uh, And back in the 90s, over 90% of homes in America were owned by people. You know, there's a lot of unanswered questions like, who's behind these shell companies. So I write in the book about some people who are really close to Donald Trump, uh, like his best friend, Tom Barrick, uh, Steve Schwartzman, the founder of Blackstone, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who play in this game of foreclosing and, uh, and buying homes that used to be owned by families and profiting from that. One of the criticisms I've got is that they're only part of the puzzle, and that's exactly right. But there's very little transparency in this area. So every single landlord, every single player becomes a major investigation for an investigative journalist such as myself. And if you're just a member of the public trying to answer the question that you just asked me, it's maddeningly difficult. So you argue, essentially argue in the book that housing now uh, coming out of the 2008 financial crisis and, and foreclosure crisis is much more of a commodity than it was before that. And can you explain what that means for individual people and individual neighborhoods? You're looking at a situation now where about one third of the home purchases in California and nationwide are being made with cash, often by shell companies. So, you know, when we get into this discussion of whether or not we have a housing shortage, I mean, part of the problem is that if you want to go shopping for a house, by the time it gets to the point where there might be an open home that you might go to and see the home and try to go buy that house, make an offer, go get a mortgage, go through that long, lengthy process, somebody else has already cut in line and bought it with cash. And this started 
with the foreclosure crisis and big Wall Street firms coming into California, especially in parts of uh, Southern California, the Bay Area, Sacramento, that have been hit hardest by the foreclosure crisis. But it continues today at both the high end of the market in the new condo towers that are going up out to places in Riverside and San Bernardino where there are tract homes that kind of represented the American dream of home ownership that are now owned by large corporate landlords. So a lot of what we hear from landlords when it comes to vacancy rates is there's not really an economic incentive for a landlord to deliberately keep a, let's say, a single family home that they own and want to rent vacant. Um, they're obviously going to make more money if someone is actually occupying it and paying rent. Is that a legitimate argument to you? Um, are there any reasons why corporate entities might be more likely to keep a unit vacant than, let's say, mom and pop landlords? Certainly the corporate landlords that I read about in my book that have bought up thousands of homes all across California, their business model is based on charging rising rent. And they try to keep them all occupied. And, you know, they track very meticulously how much their rents are going up. They sign lease agreements with their tenants that put more and more of the maintenance responsibility onto those tenants. So they keep their costs down by making the tenants responsible for fixing the plumbing or a broken window and at the same time jacking up their rent. You know, then there's also other factors that are at play. You have uh, the Treasury Department concerned that shell company buyers are laundering money through real estate in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. So they don't care if they're renting it out and making income on a month-to-month basis. They're just washing their money through our buildings. Then you have other factors like Airbnb, techies owning multiple homes, and uh, other just rich people buying up communities for second homes when uh, you and I have trouble getting a first home. And one of the things that we don't know because of the lack of transparency is how important each of these factors are in the conundrum that we face. And that's one reason why my employer Reveal, last month we went to court and filed a freedom of information lawsuit against the Treasury Department because they have been collecting data on who is behind the shell companies that are buying up about a third of residential real estate in California's major cities. So how much of what you're describing do you think is at the root of some of the housing affordability problems that we have, particularly in California? And how much of it do you think is some of some potentially other factors, either an overall housing shortage, a lack of funds to help support the construction of new low-income homes in particular. Can you weight what your findings show compared to some of these other concerns? California's housing crisis is multiple housing crises. Los Angeles has the lowest home ownership rate in the nation, according to the census. It's lower even than New York City. You know, the Bay Area has a very low home ownership rate. Even Fresno has a strikingly low home ownership rate. And so if you look at this lack of equity of who owns the property, it puts people in a much more vulnerable position. And this is directly connected to the fact that, you know, about a million of the foreclosures during the foreclosure crisis were here in California. And so you had this generational transfer of wealth from a million families to a few well-heeled speculators. People feel like they're just hanging on. People feel like they're worried they're being pushed out 
out. That is connected to the fact that people do not have equity. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the California dream is that you own your own place and you live in it and you have security and you raise your family there. And that is the part of the housing crisis that is directly connected to my work. My California dream now is in-unit washer-dryer, which I've recently achieved. So I'm set now. Boy. That's pretty yeah. That's pretty good. I don't even have that. Yeah. So what I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there's a lot of attention in California on homelessness. Homelessness is a real problem. Yeah. Right. Right. We got to deal with homelessness. I don't know the extent to which homelessness is connected to what you and I are talking about right now. Right. But you know, we could try to dream a little bit bigger than a washer dryer. Right. And we live in the country. We live in a country where the average homeowner is worth about two hundred thousand dollars and the average renter is worth about two thousand dollars. And this is because we spend about 80 percent of our income on just five things, you know, food, housing, shelter, medical care, transportation. And Netflix. the rest of those things, you know, <laughs> Netflix, well, we haven't even gotten to Netflix or like vacation or even college tuition, you know, like all that is extra. By the time we've like paid our housing costs, paid our healthcare bill, bought our food, you know, driven in our car, taken the bus, we've chewed up most of our paycheck. And so you take that one biggest chunk of your income, which is your housing costs. Either that is going to go to pay off your mortgage and build wealth for your family and security for you so you can have for forfend retire or send your children to college, mm -hmm. or you're going to pay it in rent, in which case your biggest dream that you can have is an in-unit washer dryer. <laughs> and I would hope that, you know, we, we're able to dream a little bit bigger than that. I was so happy to get an in-unit washer dryer, and now I feel like that's less of an achievement than I... Yeah, originally you were, thought you were just owned, you know, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, let's say that it's your first step on your way to real financial security. <laughs> nice. I feel like we've we've entered TIA craft commercial uh, territory now. Aaron, your your book has been used by um, uh, anti-development activists, most notably um, Susan Kirsch, uh, who was actually on our podcast a few months back. So just a quick explanatory comma about, uh, Susan Kirsch, a, a Marin County homeowner, founder of a group called Livable California, which has advocated for uh, slow growth around the state and in state policy. And her point was, look, if you kind of read what's in this book, uh, maybe California's affordability crisis is less about the fact that we haven't built enough housing, and particularly market rate housing, and more about the activity of these speculators and investors that you've detailed. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Your book has kind of been sucked into this debate over whether we should build more housing in California. Is that an appropriate use of your reporting? I don't weigh in on whether or not we have enough housing and whether or not we have a housing shortage and whether or not we need to have more development or denser development or not. Uh, but those two debates are connected in that we also have to ask not only do we have enough housing, but also who owns the housing that we have. Mm -hmm. yeah. If our suburban communities are being bought up by people like Blackstone that are dramatically raising rents over time and locking people out from building wealth for their families, that is connected to our housing crisis. If we build new 
you know, apartments in downtown San Francisco and downtown Los Angeles, but they're dark at night because they're being bought up by shell companies uh, for money laundering or second homes or Airbnb or whatever, that is not necessarily solving our housing crisis either. And one thing that I write about in the book that we haven't talked about yet is the way in which these homes are being leveraged again and a new debt bubble is being built by these large corporations. Aaron, I'm wondering what, what do you think, what did you think and what have you thought about the protest by Moms for Housing in Oakland? Well, it was a really successful protest. First of all, they got the nation's eyes on this problem. Uh, you had these, you know, few moms who are formerly homeless occupying a home in West Oakland that had been bought by a out-of-town speculator through a foreclosure auction. And, uh, you know, the legal owner of the property was a shell company called Catamount Properties 2018 LLC. And the moms occupied this vacant home and they connected it back to Wedgwood, which was a Redondo Beach uh, property flipper that had bought up you know, hundreds of homes across the West. Their protests caught the nation's attention because it spoke to the wider themes that we've been talking about. It spoke to the wider issue of our inability to get a foothold in our own communities and the powerlessness that we all feel with people with a ton of money coming in, buying these homes cash, and sometimes even leaving them vacant during the middle of a housing crisis. So I think that there's some real, real traction on this stuff. Thank you very much, Aaron. We are here with Dominique Walker of Moms for Housing and Carol Fife of the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, Dominique, let's let's start with you. Why don't you tell us? Start by telling us uh, about growing up in Oakland. Uh, growing up in Oakland, um, I was great. A sense of community. Um, going to um, high school, I've been organizing since I was a teenager, and um, everybody knew each other on the block where I grew up, and um, it's just a beautiful experience. I'm very prideful about being from Oakland just because of the history and the culture. Everywhere I go, I, I represent Oakland. What were you organizing about back in high school? Um, about the driving while brown or black, um, five people together being considered a gang. Um, so that affected us as being teenagers and going out with your friends. So if five or more people together, the police can consider you a gang. And um, we also had metal detectors and a police substation in our um, in our high school. So uh, I was with a group called Youth Against Community and Justice NIA, which means purpose in Swahili. And we um, co-founded, um, well, I co-founded the high school I graduated from. So that's where the organizing began for me out of um, being oppressed, I guess. Can you tell us about how much Oakland has changed since you grew up there? Like, what stands out the most? It's like, oh, my God, look how much this city has uh, transformed. There's lots of encampments, and the neighborhood is totally different. Um, the people that I grew up with in my community are can no longer afford to live here. They're either, either displaced out into um, cities far away, um, as far as two hours away and commuting back and forth for work or they're displaced out into the streets. So there's um, 
no real sense of um like the community is leaving like when I came back in April I couldn't went to my same block and nobody was there so we're we're displaced where where are they now either Vallejo Antioch Stockton or in out on the streets so tell us about how you made the decision to to occupy the the property um there's vacant homes and um we needed to shelter our our children um so we formed moms for housing out of um the need for for shelter for ourselves and our children and also the purpose um of our organization is to reclaim houses um from speculators um which plays a big role in the displacement of our people that land should be back in community control so was there like a was there like a room like a kind of an aha moment or just like you know, how do you come upon an idea like this and, and kind of tell us about how that formulated and, and how you sort of made that made that move? Yeah. And how did you pick that house? Well, um, the number of vacancies, there's four vacant houses for every one homeless person. So that in itself, um, it just makes sense <laughs> that those houses be made available to those without shelter. Um, and I think that's a common common sense and then it came out of complete desperation and um the community um when we all of the moms um our community organizers and talking to our communities they point out all the vacant homes um there's lots of them the one on on magnolia street in the area i think there's like three um you can look out the window and and see three vacant homes so they're everywhere, and this home in particular is owned um, by Wedgwood, um, and Wedgwood and other companies like Wedgwood are the um, are displacement machines in our community. And Wedgwood in particular is a displacement machine. It's composed of five different companies, and they all play a role in mass displacements of people. Um, in um, communities where they are already preyed upon during, like, the foreclosure crisis and um, things like that. Um, could you tell us about the, the day you actually moved into the house? Like, what, what, what was that day like? I believe it was maybe 10 or 11. Um, we moved in November 18th. Um, our community were, were gathered with us and helped us moved, move into uh, the house and... It was a wonderful feeling. It was the beginning of um, of this movement um, as housing for a human right, as a human right. What was it like in the, in there? When I mean, I know that from reading some of the accounts, you know, you folks that started paying the gas and electric bill, did some painting, did some some you know work uh, outside, cleaning up. What was it like, kind of to, to taking care of it and and working to kind of make it make it your own? Yeah, when people use terms like squatter, um, I don't identify myself as a squatter. Um, we moved into that home. We wanted to reclaim it back into the hands of the community. It was an eyesore on the block. We had to pressure wash the outside, had to install a water heater, fridge, stove, um, lots of work on the inside. Um, a lot of community support with doing that. And it's still, at this point, not up to code. Um so there was a lot um, going into making it a home, um, but I think that we did that. 
and it just goes to show that um, we weren't just squatting. We were making a home. We were making um, the community. We were m meeting our neighbors and becoming friends with our neighbors. It was a sense of community. Who who did the cooking? <laughs> um, I I I cook sometimes. <laughs> so was it was it like a rotation type thing? Like Dominique does the cooking on this day, and then someone else does the cooking on another day, and. Uh, no, it was just, I mean, sometimes we cooked, sometimes we got food. It just depends on the day. Our schedules are really busy, especially with us working multiple jobs and having children. Speaking of uh, your schedules being busy, this, this story blew up. I mean, that's why you're on this podcast. That's why um, it's got national media coverage. I'm curious, like, what's it like to be the person one of the people at the center of that. Um, it just lets me know that um, I'm on the right side of history. Um, it was absolutely necessary to um, not be fearful to be on the front lines of this movement because it's it's either life or death for us. This is our lives. And um, providing shelter for ourselves and our children is important. But there are so many others that are dying every day from just not having shelter and it's a basic human need a basic human right obviously it's it's against the law to go in and take a house right um what were your concerns or how did you kind of come to um a, the decision that irrespective of what the the law said this was something that you needed or wanted to do um, it was absolutely necessary, and a lot of things were Ill illegal until someone broke the law. Um, it was illegal for uh, black and white folks to go to the same school. That legal um, doesn't mean moral. Um, so with that being said, um, we, we moved into the house, and we provided shelter for our children. How did you know as this was, process was going on, that you were winning the argument over this? Because um, people see this is not just an Oakland issue, um, not just an issue in the United States. This is a global issue, and folks have been reaching out from everywhere letting us know that they've been dealing with these same struggles and a lot of other struggles that are connected all over the world. And... Um, it just lets me know that this is something that affects everyone. Like everyone is closer to being homeless than they are um, to being a billionaire. So this is an issue that affects everybody. And I feel like this story has blown up because of that. Tell us about the day of the eviction. Um, obviously, there was a court ruling that happened, you know, a little bit before the actual eviction occurred. I know it was early in the morning. Um, what was that? What was that day like? That day um, just really let me know about the violence here in the United States, the terror um, for for folks that look like me. Um, the military police or Alameda County Sheriff came in with fatigue and tanks and robots. It, it was it was unbelievable, but it just let us know the kind of terror that we're 
experiencing here by the hands of folks that are meant to protect us. Um, and they came with tanks and robots for babies, AR-15s for babies and mothers. Um, it was unbelievable, and I think the world saw that and, and was outraged. And we're, we need to hold those folks accountable, the Alameda County Sheriff, whoever was involved in that militarized eviction. I've never seen eviction carried out like that. How did you start getting word that there might be a deal where you might be allowed to stay in the house? Well, the day that, the, and this is Carol. Hey, Carol. The, hey. The day that we were told by the opposition, uh, their attorney, that we could come in and get the things, pack up all of the things that were in the house. And this is after this is after the, the eviction. After, yeah. Yeah. Correct. I, the day after the uh -huh. eviction, the Wedge, Wedgwood's attorney contacted the mom's attorney and said that, you know, they could come in and get their things. Um, that we arranged a time. I it was ten or ten thirty for the moms to come in and, and pack their things. Uh, and then we got word via text and phone calls that all of the things were on the sidewalk. And it was at the same time that our municipal utility district that controls water was doing construction right in front of the house. There was a trench that was dug right in front of the house. And so they were um, digging up the, the, the street. They were repaving it with asphalt, um, spraying the gravel. And so it got all of the mattresses and bedding muddy and dirty and dusty um, and that image when received by two of the mothers in particular um, when they saw that and they came to the house they were once again re-traumatized and the news crews happened to be there and one of the moms Misty Cross just went in on all of the elected officials who knew about the military raid on the governor who was supposed to be in town the following day and really called out everyone, the elected official for that particular district who has still to this day not been in contact with the moms, has ignored all attempts at communication. Uh, this, is the, this is the city council person, yeah. Correct, the city council person for that, where the house is located. Um, everyone had pretty much um, ignored the moms until the military uh, raid because that, that's what we're calling it, with tanks and drones and um, AR-15s. Ambulances were there. Um, there were actually two patrol cars from Oakland Police Department. There were, I've, I'd never seen anything like that in, in my 20 plus years of organizing in Oakland. I've never seen that with uh, some of the terrorists who've actually shot up churches in, in the United States. I've never seen this kind of response. Um, so that it was that image that we believe made Governor Newsom and his staff reach out to Moms for Housing to say, yeah, I'd like to meet with you on my homelessness tour. I'm ending in Oakland. So they reached out and tried to schedule time for the moms to speak, but none of the moms were available. As Dominique said, everyone works and some people multiple jobs. So I went um, as a, in, in my capacity as the director of ACE and uh, talked about some of the 
some of the things that Wedgwood put forward because they created this whole list of um, concessions that they wanted to provide. And so, you know, we, we discussed what ACE's interest in this is, which is, you know, the same things we've been fighting for for years for our members, which is housing as a human right. It's something that the moms have also been advocating for. And so that's when the discussion started about, you know, Wedgwood's offer. The moms were not able to uh, weigh in at that time, but over the course of the next few days, reviewed the, the, the list of concessions and also provided their own demands uh, for the city of Oakland. What's the status now? There's a, a, an agreement to pursue negotiations for the, uh, the Oakland Land Trust to purchase the, the, the house. Is that that's correct? That is correct, and those negotiations are, um, you know, they're they're engaging in those conversations. But we're we may let's just say that Greg Geyser may be getting cold feet. So we definitely um, have to stay on top of what's happening. Um, he may be trying to increase the cost of the house for the land trust to market rate, which is exactly what the moms we're advocating against. That is the problem. That's the problem with speculation. When um, land is inflated, the cost of land is inflated. So um, everyone is paying attention and watching to make sure that whatever's happening at the house does not increase the cost of the sale for the land trust. Because um, yeah, it's just, it's the, the cost of housing is just exorbitant. and we are still committed, all of us, all of, all of the people who are uh, aligned in housing justice in this city, and it's growing throughout the state, want real estate speculation out of our cities. So, and, uh, and, uh, and Greg Geyser is the, the founder of Wedgwood. He's the CEO yeah. of, of yeah. Wedgwood, yes. So it, it doesn't sound like this is a, a done deal. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. What, what do you think that local, state, and federal policymakers are, are missing when it comes to the housing affordability crisis in California? I believe that you cannot have a democracy as long as the wealthy are allowed to play in politics. So because the wealthy can fund elected officials' campaigns and con contribute to their campaigns, we will continue to have policies that are passed that protect the rich. And the rich have a lot of money tied up in land. So as long as that's the case, the laws that are made will, uh, will favor them and not favor working people. Right now, the wage in Alameda County where Oakland is located to be able to afford the average me median priced uh, apartment is $40.88 per hour. There are not a lot of working class people who can afford that. So I recently went on a tour of an apartment complex yesterday where a two bedroom was $6,995 per month. One two bedroom? I'd never seen a two anything. Bed, one two bedroom? Yeah, wow. it's a, yeah, it's a two bedroom apartment. And I just, and HUD says that in order to not be rent burdened, you should reserve 30% of your income for household costs. So if that were the case, then that would be someone that is making $21,000 per month. And those are the Sounds units that- nice. 
right? It sounds very nice. But those are the units that developers are building for. They're not building for people who work at Target or who may be security guards or teachers. So what, what legislators are missing is what they're paid to miss, is the fact that as long as real estate is speculative, there will be a housing crisis, there will be homelessness. It's built and baked into the system. So I want to I want to follow up with that with you, Carol. Um, you know, I think for some context for listeners, you know, ACE was one of the the sponsors or primary supporters behind last year's legislation that uh, capped uh, rent increases, annual rent increases statewide. Also provided for um, uh, you know required uh, just cause for evictions. And and I'm wondering how does this mo- action by the moms in this this protest coordinate with the larger organizing project or larger efforts that you folks are are doing. What this does is builds a, a larger umbrella. It builds uh, a, the base for a movement. The courageous actions that these moms took by um, standing up to some of the most powerful interests in the country, in the world, which are real estate interests, is galvanizing people all over the world. We've had people um, reach out from the Philippines, from Japan, from England, Ireland, um, Chicago, Philadelphia, Texas, uh, New Mexico, because everyone understands that housing should be a human right. It is the foundational element that everyone needs to thrive. So when only the wealthy have access to safe and secure housing, it makes life um, just n- not even livable. Liam and I were discussing earlier um, on the podcast how exactly you execute housing as a human right. So what, what are the like specific policies that you would suggest? Let's say um, the voters approve a constitutional amendment to California's constitution that guarantees housing as a human right. Um, what, what follows after that? Well, I don't want to scare all the wealthy real estate interests <laughs> in the apartment association, but really it allows, uh, it allows legal action to be taken when housing is not. Uh, a human right. So if someone so who sues is, who? We sue the state. the The individual would sue the state or a particular um, real estate interest corporation LLC. Um, there, there are a few options that can be taken, but we would hope that our cities and and counties do more, especially our county uh, in Alameda County, are, are is more equipped to handle the housing crisis than say our city. They are, um, they have access to more financial resources. Hopefully the state will, instead of investing in temporary shelters like trailers, which is it's a temporary fix, but hopefully they will take those millions and millions of dollars and invest them into rehabilitating some of these vacant properties and rehabilitating and um, building on public parcels so that you know, we don't have to go down that route. Liam, do you want to ask the uh, property rights question? I, I will. No, go ahead. Do it. If, do it. Do it. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Right, 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 right. Somebody yeah, right. Property right. rights. Well, yeah, yeah at, at some point it has to be asked. Right. So um, still Wedgwood's property, right? People paid money for that house. What kind of gives you the right to take over that property? We're all, we're on stolen land right now. Um, America was stolen from the native people. And those homes in, in West Oakland and East Oakland were stolen. 
um, through the foreclosure crisis. So um, it was stolen <laughs> and bought by Wedgwood at a, um, a foreclosed price. It's important not to conflate individual ownership with corporate ownership. And I've been saying like newsflash people, a corporation is not a person. And a corporation that is allowed to buy two to 300 homes per month in bulk keeps homes and home purchases and even rentals out of the reach of most people in Oakland. The fact is that this system is inherently racist. There's been a long history in the United States where certain groups, uh, Japanese people, native people, black people, um, Latinx people have been barred from building, for, from living in certain neighborhoods. And if until those issues are rectified in this country, the racist legacy of housing, then it will always, it will always preference white home ownership over everybody else. And not just white home ownership, anyone who cannot afford these ridiculous prices for housing. So this home was not owned by a person. And we really need to reiterate this. This home was not owned by a person. It was vacant and owned by a corporation that is pricing out anyone's ability to adequately participate in the housing market. Um, I have a question, uh, Dominique. I I'm curious, what's next for you and your family personally, and what's next for your perspective for the, for the movement? Um, right now, um, after um, all this trauma and everything we dealt with with the eviction, we are um, just figuring out our, our living situation and moving forward um, for my family personally. And then for the for Moms for Housing, um, this is just the beginning. All right. Uh, thank you so much, guys. We, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And I'm Liam Dillon of the Los Angeles Times. My Twitter handle is at DillonLiam. And uh, we want to uh, give a, a special shout out slash plug to something one of our listeners has uh, recently created. Yeah, so this is thank you, Sunil. Uh, one of our, a, a, a dedicated Give Me Shelter listener has created a subreddit uh, on Reddit for California housing. So it's slash California housing, a uh, place to discuss California housing policy debates, uh, latest episodes of this fine podcast, really anything you want to be talking about. Uh, that's a good spot to have that conversation. So if you want to crush some idiotic thing that I said or Liam said on the podcast, uh, this subreddit seems like the place to do it. Yep. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.